There are some people that make their work just another thing they have to do. And there are those that make their work something that they want to do. Welcome to Working on Purpose with your host, Elise Cortez. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration from those people who have found deeper meaning and personal connection to their work life. It's beyond 9 to 5. It's Working on Purpose. Now, here is your host, Elise Cortez. I'm your host, Elise Cortez, joining you from New York City this week, where I'm doing some consulting. Great opportunities for me here. This program is all about helping people more meaningfully and productively connect with their work and equipping organizations to do the same for their employees. I bring on guests who have a particular perspective or experience that I think expands the conversation about meaningful and productive work, and I often draw on my own meaning work research I've been doing over the last 15 years, as well as my own consulting experience. Last week, if you missed the, the live show, you can always catch up via recorded podcast. We were on the air with Lexa Rollins, who is a transition expert and founder of Spheres of Influence. We talked about how to navigate key life transitions, whether it's something personal like going through a divorce or something professional like getting fired or even promoted to your dream job. They can both be very stressful. It's all about transition and the way we go about the transitions that makes all the difference. With us this week is a dear life, not quite lifelong, but longtime friend of mine, Mike Rochelle. He is the founder and chief executive officer at Mike Rochelle and Associates, which is a management and leadership development consultancy. We'll be talking about the digital transformation in the workplace and how dialogue has something somehow slipped out of everyday life and what we can do to restore its place. He joins us today from Dallas, Texas. Michael, welcome to Working on Purpose. Greetings, Elise. How are you today? I am great. Oh, my gosh. It's so great to be on the air with you after all this time. We talked about this some time ago about how come you haven't been on the air with me yet, and now it's time. Let's do this. <laughs> there you go. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> me, too. And I want to start, if we can, uh, just let's crack right into the content so we can bring our, our, our listeners in who came for the particular piece of digital transformation. I want to start there, Michael. Uh, you and I share a, share an interest in that, right? I'm interested because I really, really care about how it it is um, really transforming the way people are connected to their work and do their work. Why are you interested in digital transformation? Uh, well, I, I'm primarily interested in it because it is the thing that's going to shape our work for the next at least decade, if not forever, uh, because of this digitization of the entire world. Uh, people are being left behind. Uh, some don't know exactly how to deal with it. Um, and uh, those in corporations, many of whom do work that is automatable, uh, are in a bit of trepidation as to what their future might look like. So what I hope is that I can bring some hope to those people that, are, that find themselves in that situation um, and then just show that change is constant and that change is the way that we as a species evolve and that we become better um, and that what got you here isn't going to get you there. I absolutely completely subscribe to that same philosophy, as you probably well know. One piece yes. that I would add to that as well is that for me, since I care about how people meaningfully product and productively connect with their work, I'm interested in helping people find ways to more meaningfully connect with their work. And so my thinking is, is if we can help shed some awareness to what are the opportunities for people in relation to working with technology and automation, how might that actually bring up their contribution to what they're doing in their work? And what I know from my research, and you and I have talked about this before, is that generally speaking, the higher level you go up in like Maslow's hierarchy in relation to meaning connections, the more satisfying work is anyway. So I'm on a quest to help people more meaningfully and higherly connect with their 
their work too. Yeah. So in a, in a earlier iteration of my company, I called myself the helper of joy. So I think that shows you that I'm pretty much in alignment with what you're talking about. It's that um, each individual has to find that path to get forward in their own way. Right. It is an individual path. Um, uh, but there are guideposts along the way to getting that better meaning, better uh, connection to what it is that you're doing and the benefit of the feelings of uh, accomplishment when you're able to do it for yourself and help others along that way. And we both know, right, we've worked in a lot of change management. We both know that that is incredibly uncomfortable for a lot of people to, to be faced with that. And so, right, helping them work yeah. through that, helping organizations work through that is, I, I think there's a real contribution to make there. And to that end, Definitely. Michael, if you could, I know you, you speak from some pretty interesting stats. Um, I've seen you've talked a bit about something about 25 million to 335 million people will change roles by 2030. Wow. I mean, that's a lot of shift. Can you say more about yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that stat came and, I, and I've heard it in, in numerous places now, uh, but that came from a future of work survey or summary that McKinsey did. Um, and the summary of the summary to your point is that 75 million to 375 million people are going to change roles by 2030. And then about 23%, and this is the part that brings people trepidation, 23% of U.S. work hours are automation ready. That's across the board, across all industries. Now, in some industries, they're more heavily impacted by, than others, right, where there's repetition, where uh, you can robotize the process uh, through automation, um, that, those roles are impacted more quickly. Uh, but as we get into the second and third generation of robotization, then you can get into the situation where uh, actual thinking and decision-making is being done by robotic process. So, um, like I said, it's going to impact everybody. So the priorities as you look forward in this new world that is so changing and it's changing so fast is that uh, there are uh, some priorities that we as uh, leaders need to think about. We need to make sure that we are growing the economy because by growing the economy, we provide more opportunities for those higher level jobs that you and I seek and many of your listeners do. Um, that we will have to do skills upgrade every three years, right? So basically, the, the thing that you're doing today is not the thing that you're going to be doing three years from now. And that along that path, you're going to have to find that direction, um, that this is a fluid labor market. Accenture calls it a um, uh, yeah, fluid labor market. It's just that your your career, you move from role to role and in much like a consultant's life. So th for those of us who have been in consulting for many years, uh, even though the dry spells between projects are still uh, difficult, um, it's a little more easy for somebody that does work on a project basis to do this new way of, of working. Uh, but more and more people are going to find themselves in that situation where their skill set is needed for a particular season. That season may be for a month, it may be for six months or whatever. Um, and then what all of this means is that we have to provide as leaders, and this is where I, um, I find myself a bit of a revolutionary in the working world, right? We, I think, are responsible for the people that we lead. 
And then we have to help them to identify what that roadmap looks like for themselves and then help them with transition support. So, and this is in the best interest of the company too. It's in the best interest of the, of an investor as well, because you're actually taking advantage or taking uh, responsibility for and growing an asset, right? People being one of the assets that a company has and, and has been under uh, developed for years. Yes. Uh, I don't remember what's, where, what stats, I think you and I talked about this before, Michael, but uh, that some companies spend like less than 1% of their overall budget on people development, which obviously has to change drastically for this to really take off. I'm very interested in being part of, of the solution of being able to help organizations bring up their talent force to be able to, to meet those more future needs around digital transformation and, and, and automation, artificial intelligence, all those things that just scare people to death. I'm very much interested in that as well. So, to, so to that yeah. end, Michael, do you do you have any 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 thoughts or anything you can share with regard to what you're seeing organizations do that maybe is a is a, a step in the right direction? Yeah. So, so leading edge organizations are actually addressing this strategically rather than waiting for the ball to drop, uh, right? And what that means is that, and I'm going to give you an example. Uh, some of the the uh, information that I sent you. Uh, that I uh, received from CEB, uh, a perspective on change. And I'm going to use the IT industry because that's the one that I've been working in for the last 25 years, uh, the one that I know the best, and I can actually walk uh, through kind of the process of what this looks like from an individual in that role. So let's say that um, from a, if you looked at a, a regular graph, on the left-hand side, you'd have diminishing importance to heightened importance, you know, on a, on a vertical axis. And on the bottom, you have future importance within the organization, and it starts out at low and it goes to high. So it's similar to the chart that you use for your work. Um, there is a point where uh, most of the roles that are existing today are in the diminishing importance arena, um, and they're being de-invested from a company perspective. So I'll give you an example. Uh, in a world where we don't have data centers sitting in a company anymore, the infrastructure director, the person that actually directs the purchase, the placement, the uh, backup, and all of the things that happens within the infrastructure uh, goes away because Microsoft and Google and Amazon and you know bunches of other people are providing uh, infrastructure that is more sound, more secure and less expensive than you can do by yourself. So that, but that infrastructure manager has 30 years of experience, and it's not just the managing of the stuff, it's the managing of the culture of the company, where the, where the different uh, functions happen around the globe, and all of that stuff. <clears throat> so if, somebody, if somebody's in that, that situation, they have two choices. At, at least I'm going to make it a two-choice situation. Obviously, there are multiple, but I'll just make it two for, for simplicity's sake. They can decide that they're going to cut their salary on an annualized basis and go to work for an, uh, for a, uh, an outsourcer, uh, or they can start moving up in value to the company so that they move above that line where there's no importance to the company or to the organization. So I'll give you a couple of examples there. They could move into the information architect role. They could move into an IT strategist role. Um, They could move into a chief architect role. Uh, They could move into account management role of the outsourcer that's actually providing the infrastructure service. 
The thing is that between an uh, infrastructure manager or director and those roles, there is a gap, right? Because they have been trained traditionally in engineering and they know how to deal with stuff. Now they're going to be dealing with contracts and they're going to be dealing with uh, a little more politics and they're going to be dealing with things that they've never dealt with before. So wouldn't it be cool if we had a way to assess where they are today and said they're sitting here and they have all of these great skills um, and then in a, to move them up into one of those other roles that are higher value to the company, we need to add four to six capabilities. So we have a two or three year transition period. Uh, maybe it's less than that, right? <clears throat> so that then they can have access to training. And this, to your point, Elise, that 1% or less than 1%, depending on where the companies are. Tech companies obviously spend more than that because that's their business. Uh, but by and large, in corporate America, they've not been spending a lot. So that that is going to have to increase, but it needs to increase on, from both from a scale perspective. And I did some work with Pearson Education uh, just a few years ago. Um, and when you're working, you're working with the people doing leadership development for the people that are actually creating the software of the future, uh, where the trend is going is so that it's completely individualized, Right. So it's not just any infrastructure manager moving to any account manager role. It's Elise Cortez with all of her uh, wonderful uh, skills and wonderful capabilities. I would add to it, as I think you would as well, what their strengths are, what, what they're really good at and what they're not really good at, right? So if somebody is an extrovert and really likes to deal with people and they have those infrastructure skills, that account management role would probably be a good role for them. But it may not right. be a good role if they're not that, unless they want to grow in that way. And that's their choice, right? So, so then you take all of that, who they are and what they are, and the actual skills and capabilities, and then start moving them in a path that, that is strategic. Um, and that's, that's something that I've not seen anybody do yet. Uh, but there are some, some people in the marketplace that are making these things happen uh, in a short period of time. Well, I know that's something both you and I are committed to our, ourselves professionally to helping organizations do, and we're going to talk more about that. Let's take a quick break. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. We're on the air with Michael Rochelle, who is the founder and chief executive officer at Mike Rochelle and Associates, a management and leadership development consultancy. He joins us today from Dallas, Texas. We've been talking a bit about digital transformation and the effect it has on how we'll need to transform our workforces into the future. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. 
If you're just joining us, my guest is Mike Rochelle, who is the founder and chief executive officer at Mike Rochelle and Associates in management and leadership development, development consultancy. He is also the president of AITP DFW, a nonprofit whose mission is to develop ethical business technology leaders at all levels by encouraging and growing active thinkers to impact the world through universal virtues in action. We've been talking about digital transformation and its impact on the workforce. I want to say a little bit more about that as we continue on here. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. So, Michael, we were talking before about this, what this really requires on an individual basis for people to handle the change that's involved in, in, in digital transformation. Can you say more about what, you, what your experience is, what you're doing to help organizations in that manner? Sure. So, uh, like you said, it, it, it is an individual thing to, to make change happen in one's own life. If you have a vision, like we talked about before, of growth, where your organization is actually helping you to put that together, uh, that builds an engagement and a, and a loyalty uh, that few companies are going to have. And now that we're in a nearly zero uh, unemployment basis uh, economy, uh, keeping the right employees is very important, right? So having something that actually provides that kind of engagement and that kind of stuff is something that really should matter uh, as, as things go by. Um, now let's think about it from a organizational perspective because organizations don't happen in a, in a vacuum. As a matter of fact, um, the way that I think about it is that you have to mature the capabilities of the entire organization as you begin a journey of innovation. So let's say that they're going to do a project based on Internet of Things technology or the automation that we talked about, robotic process automation, uh, whatever the actual technology that enables this change to happen, let's think about behind the scenes what is going to happen to the culture of the organization. So the first thing you need to make sure that you, you think about is the customer experience. First, you don't want to do something that's going to negatively impact the customer experience just because it's uh, automated, right? So you have to think, take that into consideration. The culture of the organization also needs to be taken into consideration. And, uh, you know, some, some cultures are caustic, some cultures are good. And so you can go from caustic to good and then good to great. Um, so it really depends on where you are, but you need to assess what that looks like and, and, um, and then determine who the stakeholders are in a particular change, what the impact to them is, and then put together individualized communication plan about what the value to that individual is. Because as in my experience, if you don't tell somebody and that somebody can be uh, the person that's in the data center or the person that's at the front office in a retail store, uh, that could be an executive, that could be an executive's assistant. Um, all of those people have different perspectives and they, they need to be uh, communicated at the level that they are interacting with whatever the process is that you're thinking about changing. So it's good to know those things before you start changing things. And then once you identify candidate processes, then you need to look at data-driven insights. And that's where business intelligence comes in, where you're actually considering what the value of a particular change might be. Um, and then helping the organization actually embrace that change. And there are lots of different paths to go about doing that. Uh, but a part of that change effectiveness, from my perspective, is what we talked about first, which is adding capabilities to the leadership team. So, you know, in a lot of, in a lot of situations, we have uh, organizations that are being run uh, in a way that is not uh, a very mature, uh, you know, 21st century 
management style, just to be frank, right? So leadership has to sometimes change the way that they do things and the way that they measure things as well. So it's not just on the individual uh, contributor to make this change, but it's the entire organization. Because things start at the top and then they filter down, right? And if, if that's not, if that is not a real change that's happening from the executive level and there's no energy behind it and there's no passion behind it and there's no communication going both ways from those organizations, it's not going to happen. So I think I like to think of it as crawl, uh, walk, uh, and then run. So uh, start out with small projects and then go to bigger ones. And then as the organization begins seeing the benefits to them individually, then to the team, and then to the organization, obviously driven by what the customer experience is going to be, then you can accelerate and do more and more of the automation and more and more of the innovation as you go through life. So that's, that's what I had to, to, to say about transformation. Does that make sense to you? It does. It was absolutely gorgeous, Michael. And I think that a lot of people who are listening to this are probably sc- scrambling and writing notes as quickly as they can. That was great. Really, really great competency, insight, perspective. And I, I completely agree with you. I don't know. I'm sure they're out there. Let's find them, right? I don't know of exactly. any companies that I can point to that I could say they're really proactively on the ball about being able to bring up their level of workforce capabilities to handle the digital transformation that's happening to them already. So I, you know, I know both of us want to be on the, the curve of that. So this is, this is a, sure. a way to invite conversation to that, see who, who joins us and says, Hey, I want to hear more. I want to do more. So listeners, if this is at all interesting to you, please contact Michael and I, you know how to find me. I'm at Elise Cortez on Twitter. You can get me at least at elisecortez.com and I will pass you on to Michael as well. So, Michael, um, I, I next want to talk about, unless there's anything else you want to say about digital transformation, I want to talk about what you, what you say is the, the death of dialogue. Is there anything else you want to say, though, first about digital transformation? No, I'm, I'm good to go to that. Okay. Um, so, of course, so I, I'm intrigued with, 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 that, with that whole, I love the, the way that you language that, death of dialogue. First, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, look around you, right? Get on, a, get on a news program and see that nobody will listen to anybody else before they start yelling over the top of them what they think should be done on any topic in the, in the media. Um, it, it's happening in any kind of dialogue. Uh, you know, the civility of the nation, maybe even the world, has gone down significantly. Uh, but there are reasons behind that, right? And, it, and some of it is because we're not even thinking that we need to do it anymore. I completely agree. And when we do see it, it's so refreshing, right? It's just refreshing. Uh, I will say just quickly, and this is very small on the scale here, but I'm here in New York City. I'm in Manhattan. And before I came on on air, I I popped into a a bar to get a snack and um, had a nice, beautiful salad. It was great to take salad. But when I walked in, Michael... I was always, I was completely taken aback. I was greeted with a, a very hearty hello from the back of the bar. <laughs> it was just so arresting. And it just began like that. And I sat down, got my menu, got my food, knocked out some email. And there was this wonderful interaction and banter that was happening with me and around me. And it was so refreshing. So you're right. I, I think there, there is an absence of civility. And when it shows up, it's incredibly refreshing and, and energizing. Yeah, so, so what so are we going to bring about? Well, let me give your listeners a, 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 a visual that they can think about. Uh, I've actually posted this on LinkedIn, 
um, and, and we'll send it to you electronically to share with anybody who wants it. Um, I don't even know where it came from, but it's a really neat graphic and it's called the cultural iceberg. And I heard two philosophers talking about this on a, on a uh, YouTube uh, hour and a half conversation that they were having. Um, so I looked it up and it's, uh, it's pretty fascinating. So the, the cultural iceberg, for those of you who can't see the image that I'm looking at, is an iceberg. It literally has only about, what, a tenth of the iceberg above the, above the water level. And then there's all the stuff that's beneath it. And what is in the top, I'll just read those and I'll give smatters of what's under the water. And the top of that is language and then folklore, fine arts, dress, literature, holidays and festivals and food. Those are the things that are easy to see. So those are at the surface and easier for us to deal with. Down below in the difficult to see, right below the water is beliefs and assumptions and family roles and self-concepts and core values and um, approaches to health and medicine. And there's a bunch of them. I won't go through all of them. But the point is, and the way that the, uh, the philosophers were discussing it is that what, what often happens, what I see in that example that I gave with the, the newscast that you see where they have two people that hate each other and don't want to really listen to what the other say because they have a preset narrative that they want to get across to all of their listeners is that language itself, even though it's easy to see in this cultural iceberg, it's the place where we're falling apart because there is no civility in the ability for somebody to articulate what it is that they believe in, why they believe in it and what we should do about it. Right? Because before you can get those things done, then the other person is already discounting the language that you've used so the civility of, uh, is, is necessary. We need to raise civility back in order to get to a place where we can actually have a conversation. Um, and it's falling apart there. Below that, right, the core values one, this is why in the mission statement that you read, um, my directors, uh, the board directors and I decided that virtues is going to be our focus for 2018. Um, and it's really uh, uh, virtue ethics, right, uh, which was... Um, started by Socrates and, and all of the Platoans and everybody that is uh, into uh, Greek uh, philosophy. But the virtues are actually things that are known and understood and accepted as good and true across all cultures. So I, was, I had the opportunity a couple of years ago to be on the board of the Virtues Project. A friend of mine was there, invited me to help, and I put together a little program for them. But the... Uh, but the really neat thing about the learning there was that across every faith, across every people group, across all of these things, there are things that we all believe in and that we can use as I, as I think of them as a Rosetta stone to have a dialogue that is safe, right? So that we can keep religion out of it. We can keep, um, uh, you know, what are, whatever the biases are and basically talk from a standpoint where we actually have something that people for millennia and longer have agreed is a good thing to do. Um, so that's kind of how we started with the, the whole idea of virtues. Now, obviously, in, in, in our association, which has been around since 1952, um, you know, they all have a code of ethics. So we, we're, we look at our code of ethics and we think that that's great. But what we believe is that we need to bring those things into corporations, and not just in the training of people, but in the way that we set 
objectives, the way that we set strategies, and the way that we handle how we deal with whatever the roadmap ahead of us is. Um, would you like to respond to any of that before I continue, or how would you like to go? Yes, I would. Thank you, Michael. Uh, a couple things come sure. to mind. First, what I certainly got out of that is you know, when, you talk, when you talk about civilized discourse and, and just dialogue in general, I, I certainly think about just simply the ability to listen, the willingness to listen. And when, when we listen really well, of course, what happens is the other person, as you say, then begins to start to let down their defenses and, and feel safe to be able to share their perspective because you're not immediately attacking them and shutting them down. And I think that listening is an incredible skill that every single person and certainly leaders need to cultivate. So that's one. And the other one is really looking for the other person. I mean that in its entirety, looking for what matters to the other person, uh, what, what lights them up, what motivates them, what are they looking for in life. And if we could start from that vantage point, I think it would open a lot more dialogue too versus just let me get what I want to say. And of course, these are all things that I do in my consulting and, and look for. And, and when I'm coaching someone, that's, that's always the basis. So I think those are all ingredients. And then last, I would say, you know, you and I have done a lot of work together over the years with Crucial Conversations. And I think there's, a, there's an awful lot in there. And you talk about what you said before about the iceberg. Being able to separate fact from story is such a huge way, I think, to open a more authentic dialogue. So I would just respond with, with that to presence more of it for our listeners before you go on. But go, go ahead. Yeah. No, I, I totally uh, agree with all of that. And that's where I was going to go with, with uh, Crucial Conversations. Right. It is a fascinating piece of work and a fascinating thing for people to learn how to do. Um, uh, but it is difficult. Right. Um, and it is, it is more, I think it's even more difficult when you're doing it in writing versus in person. Because Agreed. I don't know. I think, I think it's easier to say somebody's ugly. Not, I'm not saying ugly, but, you know, they're being ugly in bad pejorative terms online because you're safe, right? They're not sitting across the table from you. They're not sitting in uh, a bar with you. They are somewhere else and you can't see them. So you're going to like blast that person. So that, uh, that civility, you know, you have to really practice it online as well. And and I'm, I'm still learning that myself. You know, it's, um, I love a good debate. Um, so I have some friends who have different opinions about different things in the world and we like, we, we like to go out after it. Uh, so I'm not saying that that's not good because I think in that conversation, um, if you are keeping it civil um, and you're separating the facts from the story and then sticking to the facts as much as possible, because it's humanly impossible, I think, to do it completely. What do you think about that? I, I, I think that's just gorgeous is what I think about that. I, I think that, in fact, I don't remember who I was just speaking with about this, Michael, but we were talking about how not only is it great to be able to have debate and even, you know, uh, practical conflict, um, but because it actually yields, it yields creativity. It yields, it yields learning. It, it yields transformation because likely you personally would have never gotten to that perspective or that understanding or that view without the other person. And they, they thus contributed yeah. to you. Yeah. Yeah. And the right? thing that I, I love about that work uh, with crucial conversations is that after you have provided your facts into the pool of shared meaning, you have to, you have to address and go to that person and pull it out of them, even if they're not in a place where they want to provide it. Right. And with as much passion as you want to bring your ideas in, you've got to bring it, 
bring it out for them. So, um, yeah, it's a life, it's a lifelong learning, I believe. Well, and I'll just comment on this briefly, and then we'll have to cut to break, and we can always continue this. But what I would also say to that is what, we, what you and I both know is that the other person, and that's ourselves included, aren't always ready or able to provide what our perspective is. It's not present enough for us. And so having somebody who's patient with us while we work that through and contribute sure. to our conversation is, is, is critical. And with that, yes. let's take a quick break. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with Mike Rochelle, who's the founder and chief executive officer at Mike Rochelle and Associates, a management and leadership development consultancy. He joins us today from Dallas, Texas. We've been talking today, or this, this segment, about the death of dialogue and what we can do to get it back on track. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Mike Rochelle, who is the founder and chief executive officer at Mike Rochelle and Associates, a management and leadership development consultancy. He is also the president of AITP, AFW, a nonprofit whose mission is to develop ethical business technology leaders at all levels by encouraging and growing active thinkers to impact the world through universal virtues in action. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. So, Michael, before we took our break, we were, we were finishing our conversation, I think, about dialogue and the importance of cultivating and bringing back the civility. Anything else you want to say about that before we go on to our next topic? Well, I think that the transition into the next topic is, as, as you and I have talked about for years, that it's really the responsibility of uh, leadership of a company to uh, value their people as much as they value money, right? We all have seen in corporate uh, values or value statements that our people are our number one priority or something like that, right? Um, I, I have not seen that play itself out for many years. Um, so the challenge to those of you who are in positions of power or those of you who seek positions of power is to remember that, you know, people come before process and technology. Um, and matter of fact, how you treat those people as individuals uh, who have unique contributions to make and have growth that they can make uh, will make a big difference in the way that you're able to uh, move your, the value of your company forward. I completely agree with that, which, of course, is why I have spent the last 20 years in some form of a human capital position. So I completely agree with that, Michael. Thank you. Okay. Well, let's go on to the next topic here for our, our final segment here. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is, obviously, I am focused on being able to help people more meaningfully connect with their passion and their purpose. In fact, I had a great conversation with one of my um, previous guest just done a couple of times. It goes, Elise, I've got somebody to bring on the show for you because I think he really speaks about when people actually discover and connect with their passion. I'm like, well, let's do it. So for you, Michael, you really, in my view, you are the consummate helper. You are the consummate servant leader. 
And here you have been for the last three years, the president of AITP here in Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm interested, first, if you'll tell us what all that stands for. That's a lot of acronyms for our listeners. I want to understand a bit about what, what is that, what is this organization all about, and why do you so passionately care to lead it? Yeah, so that, that's a great, a great question. So uh, the Association for Information Technology Professionals uh, started out in 1952, actually 1951, um, as a group primarily of accountants who were trying to figure out these new things called computers and how they could professionalize that industry. So that's why an association agrees. It's a nonprofit. It's all uh, volunteer-led, volunteer-organized, volunteer-produced, right? Um, and we, the mission that you read uh, is very much along the lines of what most associations are trying to do. Over the last, I would say, I don't know, 20 years, associations have kind of, kind of fallen by the wayside. A very good friend of mine who used to be the, uh, the CIO at the, the uh, FBI uh, had, was interviewed about 10 years ago, and that organization uh, prophesied that uh, associations would be would go the way of the dinosaur by 2000 and uh, uh, you know 18, uh, if not before that, because people were not as interested in getting together anymore and learning together how to better their profession. They just wanted somebody to tell them what certification they needed to take and and move on. Uh, but I'm happy to say that that is not the case. So we have a large and diverse membership. You know, we have CIOs, CTOs, uh, which is Chief Information Officer, Chief Technical, uh, Technical Officer, Chief Information Security Officers. Um, not everybody has those titles. Uh, some of them are directors of cybersecurity or leads in that particular organization. just depends what it is. Uh, but then the, the beauty of AITP is that we go from um, – the time that a, a participant who's in a technology um, field in college is a freshman all the way through giving in retirement, right? So it's a lifelong kind of an association. Um, and I'm really excited that Bill Fly, who's been an international president of AITP and the president here in Dallas for many, many years, he has 45 years of association history. So we have some, some folks that have that kind of passion. He's still a, uh, adjunct professor and he's teaching Java at a high school as well. Um, and then we have people uh, like Mark Reynolds, who's the CIO at Centrata, uh, Mark Urbis, who's the interim pres uh, CIO at um, California Pizza Kitchen, uh, J.D. Stotts, who's the CIO at Whitney Penn here in Fort Worth, um, and uh, a lot of other really passionate people who are providing a service, which is um, you know, monthly meetings, uh, networking, and things like that that helps other individuals uh, learn how to lead better in their, uh, at their level uh, and really learn how to become the next level of leader that they need to be in order to progress through their career. I can completely see how that fits with you as a thinker as a and somebody who thinks in a forward fashion, of course, as well, and the heart piece in it, too. The lifelong piece is fascinating. I didn't know that part. Well, I also want to understand, Michael, I mean, this is one of those kind of things where, you know, you're serving, and to my knowledge, you're not, there's no pay for this. This is, this is something that people elect you to do, and you serve, correct? That's right. Okay. Our, all the more reason that I'm interested in having you talk about that, because one of the things that I like for our listeners to understand is that there are lots of ways for us to fill our overall life, so that there is that work-life mm -hmm. 
you know, integration that's meaningful and gives us everything that we need. And for you as a leader, you've been even in this space for years, as long as I've known you. And, and I think that you're absolutely who you are is probably very resonant with the mission of that organization. Do you agree or disagree or add, subtract? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, this, this is where I'm in the, in, when I'm doing this, um, and I can't remember the language that you use, um, uh, off the top of my head, but Judy Glick Smith, uh, from Atlanta came to speak to us last month and she talks about flow leadership and, and, um, the leadership class that we had before our chapter meeting, uh, she and I were there and she's like, you're in flow in that situation, right? Where you, where time and space kind of disappear and you're really, uh, super focused on helping people understand who they are in the world, how they can become their next better self. And the cool thing about that, and the thing that gets me most excited about it, is that this can be a lifelong pursuit, right? Um, I don't believe in retirement. I don't, I don't ever plan to retire um, because I, I want to see what I can become, right? And, and that passion then feeds into other people and how they can become their next best uh, iteration of themselves as well. So a couple of things to that, and, and, re, and you know my research probably better than most people on the whole entire planet do because you've been with me since literally day one. Uh, what I would say about how that language uh, lands for me is one is you know certainly you know the, who, what you're doing in that organization is inseparable from who you are. It is just you. You're just being micro shell. That's what I would first say right. to that. So in, in right. many ways, what I would say is you know there's two ways to look at that. You can say that it's resonant. It just fits me. But I think in your case, it's higher than that. There's a higher order than that in terms of the meaning scale that I use. And so I think in many ways, you are living your purpose by doing that work. From Maslow's hierarchy of need, which you and I have talked about for years, for me, it's self-transcendent, right? So in, in the, the way that most people think of, of, uh, of him is that they just get to self-actualization. But self-actualization without impl- impacting others and their ability to be uh, self-actuated is um, is not worth anything to me. Right? I ha- I have to be helping others. That's just the way. To, as to your point, that I'm built. Yeah, you're governed that way. That is your DNA. That's absolutely it. Right. Um, and, and you know, so for those of you who like Strength Finder, that that maps over to the developer strength, but it's, he does it like writ large on a hundred hundred times scale kind of thing. <laughs> um, so I, I'm also interested in understanding from, from you, Michael, with regard to your position as president, what, what are you trying to accomplish in that organization? What are you trying to move it to? So, so let me read the mission one more time, and then I'm going to add the objectives, because the mission is kind of why we exist, and then the objectives kind of lay out how we're going to impact the world. So to develop ethical business technology leaders at all levels, encourage and grow active thinkers. So we, want, we don't want to just do things because it's always been done that way. We want to look at what the new technology is, blend it with how we actually help people change through it, and by that, change the world in a positive way. And the reason that we're doing it positively is because we're using universal virtues in action, which again is that Rosetta Stone that everybody can gather to and move forward together with. So that's kind of the vision or the mission or the why, right? And then the how we do it is that we nurture and grow and this is a loaded word, but I'm going to use it anyway, and it's written there, inclusive community. And the reason I say that is because there are lots of leadership organizations all around the world that are very exclusive. They only want to be with somebody that has their same title. Um, so we like to put the titles on the side 
and actually grow together, right? So, and the way I think about this, there's a, a gentleman on my board. His name is Daniel Baskin. I don't, Elise, I don't know that you've I met have him. I Daniel, yet. yeah, I'm sure. You know, you okay, okay. Yes, so he's, he's the VP of, uh, of sales at uh, Saxony Partners. Um, but as we were riding the mission and objectives, you know, there are 12 people on our boards. So there are a lot of different opinions about what we should be and shouldn't be and that kind of thing. Uh, but I was mentored by him. Now, he's at least 20 years younger than me. He may be more than that. Uh, but he's, a, he's an active thinker. You know, I really appreciate his mind and the way that he articulates things. And he really helped me to modernize my language. And that's why we said inclusive. We said inclusive not only because of the age group of people that we're, that we're interested in, which is everybody, <laughs> but we're also interested in expanding beyond the traditional IT department. So uh, there is a, one, one fortunate thing about AITP is the name has been around for a while, uh, but we've been talking about business technologists because we are attempting to attract people that are in the business, if you will, using technology. So CMOs, chief marketing officers, um, and CFOs, people that uh, use technology all the time in their career in order to move their profession forward. Because over time, we see that IT becomes embedded in those organizations. And at some level, the traditional IT corporate structure goes away. Now, I don't know exactly how that goes away, but some, some of it is just as a standard decentralization, centralization cycle that most companies go through where you push the people that know the technology and the business into the business for a while and then things get kind of frayed and, and uh, costs kind of go out of, out of shape and then you bring it back into more of a centralized mode. But I think moving forward, that we're going to have more and more of the centralization being around core processes. And then the individual business units will have business technologists that are actually enabling their business based on those core processes that the company provides and outsource processes uh, and strategic vendors that help them think through how to do certain newer things. In about, okay. say, 30 seconds, how would you like to leave our listeners? Yeah, so what I would say is that, you know, find your passion, find your place to go grow. Um, I think through active service in the community that you can grow exponentially more than you can by just reading books and thinking about things. Uh, it gives you networking opportunities to find new opportunities in your own career path um, and also just to be a good citizen. So um, I hope that some of these things have been interesting to you guys. Uh, through Elise, you can reach me at any time. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a splendid conversation. It was very enlightening. You gave us an awful lot of actionable things to work from. So thank you very much for being my guest. Thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed it. If you want to learn more about Mike Rochelle and the work he and his colleagues are doing, visit his website. It's mraa.solutions. Next week, we have another conversation with yet another engaging and interesting, informative guest. See you then. Remember that work is at least one-third of our lives, so let's work on purpose. We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Elise Cortez, each week on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, find your life's purpose at work.